Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. In Chicago, two comedian skeptics named Andy and Art were mysteriously abducted by the illusionary mastermind and conspiracy theorist known only as Mr. Mr. Bunker. Bunker. The following serves as a record of Bunker's attempt to convince non-believers of the truth about conspiracies and paranormal activity. Andy and Art give an uninterrupted presentation and verdict on the plausibility of these offbeat topics, delivering what they call the The whole enchilada. Will Mr. Bunker convince these two skeptics any of this is real? Will it convince you? Welcome to Mr. Bunker's Conspiracy Time Podcast. As always, I'm your co-host, Art Stone, and with me, as always, is your co-host, Andy Hart. Hello, Art. Hello, (laughs) beautiful bunk funkers. Let's roll that beautiful bunk funker footage. (laughs) Hey, for this audio medium, we're going visual. Yeah, yeah. Check check the show notes. The video that we're talking about is in there. Now, Andy... There is some changes, and we should address them. Yeah, let's talk about it. We're not live from the bunker. We are. We are not. Uh, we were not abducted. We are not in the bunker. We are. Uh, but in a way, are we not all in our own bunkers at this time? Oh, fitting, Andy. Uh, that's a little bit of metaphor that'll come into play in a minute. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, we're uh, Andy. You and I are both quarantined from our homes as <laughs> everyone else should be from our homes or in our homes <laughs> oh, wait a minute wait i guess i didn't get the medal you shouldn't be staying inside your house right no you that's the only place you're supposed to go is inside the oh, home oh god this was a bad time to lose my keys oh, whoopsie doodle the only place art can stay is within six feet of every person he sees <laughs> he's quarantined no fewer uh, no. than six feet from you. <laughs> uh, it's a nightmare uh, for everyone else. Um, <laughs> no, we are both uh, podcasting live from our from our uh, our abodes. Yeah. We are uh, we're coming at you live. We're not in the bunker, but we thought, Andy. You know what? People might be like, "Well, if bunker's not abducting you, why are you doing?" We feel that in this time of need, people need to hear the show. Right. I mean, we're just such good people, Andy. <laughs> Don't you think? Like, like it's like there's those celebrities who all sang Imagine together, and it's like us right there. You they're, know, they are like, um, they're like poorly drawn versions of us. I mean, yeah, because we are that much better than than we just think like we are the world. It's like first responders, and then like 
half a notch us, you know? Right, right. And half a notch, we're just, half a notch up us. <laughs> no, Doctors, uh, nurses, we just thought, police, firefighters, paramedics, second tier, me and Art, top, top tier, <laughs> for our service to the people of this earth. That's right. Uh, we have a we global thought, audience. We've been doing this show almost a year. We figure... You know what? Bunker is sending us the topics. He's sending us from work from home style. He's he is sent. sending us the research. <laughs> he's he's had so many Zoom beatings with us. Oh, my God. <laughs> Just like constantly Zooming us at off hours. Just Zoom, Zoom, Zoom. We're going to and, the moon. Uh, in a way, Andy, he is. Uh, we'll get into it in a little bit, but he's he's a man of the globe. Much like today's topic, the Globe Theater. Um, <laughs> wow. This, uh, today's, oh boy, we're going to kill Andy. Hamlet in the first act here, huh? <laughs> mm. Today's topic, Andy, We uh, what are we talking about? Uh, we are, are talking about the, the literary conspiracy uh, surrounding William Shakespeare, uh, one of the most uh, uh, well-known and... I mean, I don't know, like globally well impactful uh, authors ever to write in the English language or may, maybe even in any language. Uh, but wow. the conspiracy, Big. I said maybe. Uh, I don't want to get the cart before the horse here. Uh, a turn of phrase worthy of the bard himself. Uh, wow. Art, uh, we're talking about the possibility that William Shakespeare, uh, the man we know historically, didn't actually write all of the things people think that he did that wow either William Shakespeare was a pseudonym or he was a stand-in for someone else wow um that's right Andy and this was actually submitted to us by a listener and a friend of mine who goes by the uh online moniker fish suit that's f s h S U I T, so fish without the I, and you can uh, you can find him on Twitter under that handle, or he stream- streams on Twitch. And uh, so, if you like to check out Twitch streams and Twitch and seeing variety uh, games being played, uh, he's a good friend of mine and uh, uh, you know a listener of the show, and we appreciate him uh, for sending in this topic. Yes, thank you, Fish Suit. Um, um, not a topic I would have uh, thought about, but actually, I'm a uh, I'm a pretty big Shakespeare fan. How about you, Andy? Uh, honestly, Art, um, you know I I like to rag on you a lot for your lack of culture and general intelligence, but uh, I have mm-hmm. to say I think that you're probably more knowledgeable about uh, the works of Shakespeare than am I. It's been a while, been a while, but uh, I did while. take a few Shakespeare classes in college, and they were eye opening. <laughs> And I have studied the first folio from doing various uh, monologue acting classes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I took my really only uh, exposure to Shakespeare was in the form of a college course. I mean, the most intense. I took an English literature class in high school, and obviously we like watched a Kenneth Branagh film. Uh, mm. I don't remember which one is maybe I don't know I don't remember which one Hamlet or something <laughs> and uh, but, I'm the dumb dumb one yeah, yeah. but uh, <laughs> yeah that's I, I, I actually I mean I I have uh, a lot of books on my bookshelf uh, that I need to read 
Um, mm-hmm. And one of them is a uh, gilded. Uh, each page is gilded. It's a hardcover, um, complete works of William Shakespeare book. Nice. I too have a complete works of William Shakespeare with uh, lots of notes that I took. Oh, okay. Liners. Well, good way to what so, up. So uh, a little bit of a pissing in, contest. Yeah, mine's a little bit of a pissing contest here up front. Huh? all over it. Great. Well, much like Shakespeare, you know, where we're doing a little ribbon, a little jabbing here. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and hey, listeners, if you want to get right to all that research, um, you can find the uh, timestamp in the show notes. And that'll direct you right to when the research starts. Because first, well, while Andy and I don't have any uh, abduction stories to relate to you, um, we're just kind of going to check in with each other. And we we do have a Mr. Bunker update. Yeah, that's true. Um, you know, Art and I are are quarantined. We, we haven't seen each other uh, physically. That's right. Which is uh, largely that's the right. basis of our relationship is physical. Mm-hmm in nature Mm -hmm. uh we haven't seen each other physically in weeks and um so we're reconnecting um some of us haven't physically seen any people in weeks some of us (laughs) i won't name names have not left the house since uh march the 12th yes hey who's counting yeah who i mean at this point it doesn't matter uh (laughs) for those of you who haven't left the house in three weeks uh thank you for flattening the curve um, <laughs> but um, Mr. Bunker is uh, not the type um, to sit at home uh, and quarantine. Um, you know, he's he's a mover. He's a shaker. He's taking advantage of the incredibly cheap airfare right now. Oh, so cheap. Uh, so and cheap. he's been uh, traveling the globe, um, going anywhere he pleases <laughs> because... Let's be honest with let's be honest with the listeners here. Our, Mr. Bunker doesn't have uh, restrictions like the rest of us should. He just doesn't need to place restrictions on himself because um, as soon as reports of the outbreak uh, were coming live across the globe, he immediately hopped a plane to Wuhan and got infected right to it infected with COVID nineteen as soon as he could. <laughs> Um, just to build immunity to it. Uh, and he does this with every outbreak uh, of everything of uh, global pandemics. Uh, he had, H1N1, swine flu, bird flu. Bird flu. Um, Both big s- bird flu and regular bird flu. SARS. SARS. Cars. <laughs> the cars. Cars. Mars. <laughs> Mars. He got infected with Mars. Um, so many, so many, uh, I mean, just so many pandemics. Right. Botulism. He just, uh, you know, he uh, he wants to build up immunity immediately. And, uh, well, you know what? He he said it himself. He, he spent so much time abducting us that he decided he's going to take a little break and he's going to enjoy himself a little bit. And the airfare is cheap. And so, Andy, we actually got postcards mailed to us. Yeah, we um, did from Mr. Bunker. Yeah, Let, and that's how he let us lets us know what topic to do. Um, <laughs> but we got a we got a postcard from Wuhan. Mm-hmm. I don't know about you, but I was a little like, "What?" You know, when I first got it, uh, I was a little little sus. But uh, <laughs> yeah, this is uh, if there's ever a time when you don't want a uh, postcard stamped Wuhan, uh, <laughs> this is it. <laughs> yeah, this is the time. Um, 
Now, Andy, what did your postcard look like? Uh, so my postcard um, art on the on the front of it, there was a panda bear in a bikini uh, on a beach, and it said, wish you were her. Wow. If that doesn't sound like a Mr. Bunker postcard, then I don't know I don't what know does. What I mean, and uh, not my know. not my proudest fap, but <laughs> certainly a satisfying one. Well, listen, <laughs> you're in quarantine. You got to do what you got to do. You know yeah, what I'm times saying? Times are tough. Toilet paper's low. Yeah. I mean, Andy. Uh, so I just did it onto has... the floor. I didn't know what else to do with it. <laughs> this quarantine has been a little tough for you, though, because um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. even before the quarantine, you you bought 80 packages of toilet paper a week. <laughs> and that's just because that's what you use a week. Yeah, not 80 rolls, 80 packages. Um, I'm a well-known 18-time-a-day shitter, and uh, this has been tough on me because um, supplies are exhausted. Um, I have uh, paid exorbitant shipping fees through both eBay and Amazon for marked-up toilet paper. Uh, and when I say marked up, I mean both in price and in quality. This is used stuff, used toilet yeah, paper. It's got it's got it brown marks. Yeah, skid marks. Um, yeah. And I'm not talking from a car tire either. This is butt butt marks. Um, but you got to do what you got to do uh, to feed my insatiable lust for TP. And uh, it's it's been tough. I mean, um, it's really put me in a financial bind. Wow. Well, luckily for you, Andy, you got that twelve hundred bucks coming in, right? And that's gonna yeah. go right towards toilet paper. I mean, that's that's like that will help me. That's one week's worth of toilet paper. <laughs> wow. Well, uh, you know, Andy, you go through toilet paper much like I imagine Shakespeare went through quills and ink. <laughs> Writing all those plays. No, I uh, don't think he was wiping his butt with quills and ink, okay? Oh, okay. Well, uh, hey, you be the judge, because, uh, you know, we're going to we'll look at our judge. research. <laughs> yeah. We're we'll, going to see in the research we'll whether he really was or not. Shakespeare wiped his butt with quills and ink. Believe me, it's in the research. <laughs> we talk a lot about Shakespeare's hygiene in this for no reason. <laughs> what did he wipe his butt with? How did he clean his ears? <laughs> that was the thing that was proposed to us, right? Oh, <laughs> uh, whoops. We forgot to write it, do any research into the literary conspiracy. Ah, well. Um, How often did he bathe? <laughs> it's the, uh, I don't know, it's the, it's the wipest. <laughs> <laughs> so stupid. It's the, it's the, the potty the the toilet the toiletry of the toiletry of venice (laughs) stratford upon toilet Uh, okay well anyway uh bathroom puns aside here uh we're gonna get right into it here with this research (laughs) on uh, whether shakespeare wrote his plays or not andy yeah and um yeah let's get into it you know let's travel to the globe theater in uh, in London and uh, Merry old England, uh, Merry old England, and let's let's go back to the sixteen uh, hundreds and let's fifteen and sixteen hundreds, and let's let's compose a sonnet for our listeners on whether or not Shakespeare wrote his plays here on Mister Bunker's Conspiracy Time podcast. Sweet, sweet Horatio. Thank you. 
or not to be? That is the question we're trying to answer. And we must answer it. After all, there is no darkness but ignorance. Ignorance is the curse of God. Knowledge is the wing wherewith we fly to heaven. Art, we know what we are, but know not what we may be. Some are born great, some achieve greatness, and some have greatness thrust upon them. Do me this favor, Art. Go to your bosom, knock there, and ask your heart what it doth know. Andy, dear, sweet, gentle Andy, I am not bound to please thee with my answer. If you have tears, prepare to shed them now. I must be cruel, only to be kind. Oh, what may man within him hide through an angel on the outward side? God hath given you one face, and you make yourself another. Let no such man be trusted. Oh, Lord, Lord, how subject we old men are to this vice of lying. A man loves the meat in his use that he cannot endure in his age. But bunk funkers, if you prick me, do I not bleed? If you tickle me, do I not laugh? <laughs> if you poison me, do I not die? And if you wrong me, art, shall I not revenge? You know what, Andy? You always claim you're going to get even with all your so-called enemies, but you don't ever really follow through with it. I follow through. I get revenge. They closed that pool down because of me. Come on. Well, that is true. You uh, you did create a hazardous environment in that pool. I will give you that one. Thank you. You heard it, bunk funkers. If you cross me, I swear to God I will get my revenge on you. <laughs> okay. Okay, bunk funkers. It sounds like Andy is drooling from the mouth. He's so worked up. But I'm worked up too. I'm hot and I'm horny. For today's topic, that is. It's an Elizabethan literary conspiracy. So you know my hog is revved and ready for action today. Oink, oink. <laughs> Wee, wee, wee. Oh, ho, 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 bunk funkers, okay. Sounds like Art's hog is drooling from the mouth he's so worked up. But he's right. Today we're talking about William Shakespeare, one of the most revered poets, playwrights, authors in the English language. Specifically, we're addressing the possibility that William Shakespeare didn't actually write the works attributed to him. Was Shakespeare just a cover for someone else? A country rube whose likeness and name were used to obfuscate the true author of some of the most well-regarded and enduring literary works in history? Well, in order for us to unwind this mystery, first we need to talk about who William Shakespeare was. What do we actually know about this guy? Well, frankly, historical records from this period are a bit spotty. As such, uh... We don't actually have that much documented evidence about the life and times of Shakespeare. Most of what we know is transmitted in the form of official type documents. You know, for example, we know from the church records that he was baptized on April 26th, 1564 in Stratford-upon-Avon, a small town about 100 miles northwest of London. A nice drive up the M40, by the way, which was the preferred route in Shakespeare's day. Shakespeare's birthday is traditionally celebrated on April 23rd, but 
That's, you know, that's really just a guess. Uh, A good guess for efficacy's sake, though, because Shakespeare died on April 23rd, 1616. So you can celebrate Shakespeare's birth and death on the same day if you want to. And I do it every year with a custom cake from my favorite erotic bakery, Nipple Pastries. Shout out to Nipple Pastries. Great bakery. Shakespeare. (laughs) Great bakery. Shakespeare, much like Andy, is often called the Bard of Avon or the Swan of Avon. But uh, unlike your co-host Andy, Shakespeare got the name from his career as a writer and from his hometown rather than from his infamous turn as a cosmetic sales rep. They had to close the community center because of me, too. <laughs> Shakespeare. Uh, that town was never the same. <laughs> I'm not allowed there anymore. Shakespeare, also like me, was married. We don't know the exact date of his marriage, but we do know that Shakespeare tied the knot sometime when he was 18. A fact I don't think people talk about enough, frankly, is that he was married to a famous actress. Shakespeare was married to none other than Anne Hathaway, star of the Princess Diaries movies, Brokeback Mountain, The Devil Wears Prada, The Dark Knight Rises, Ocean's 8, and The Hustle. It's hard to believe that Anne Hathaway has had a successful film career for more than 400 years uh, after she got started in the business, but it's true. Uh, Andy, it's uh, this is just one of those same name situations, okay? There are two different Anne Hathaways. Like, you know, there, there might even be more out there. Uh, the real truth is famous living actress Anne Hathaway's parents were inspired to name her Anne because of Shakespeare's wife. Um... So, you mean all of my erotic fan fiction and deviant art posts depicting Shakespeare's ghost manifesting on the set of the movie Interstellar and passionately making love to Anne Hathaway doggy style, just like he used to when they were both alive, while Matthew McConaughey struggles to silently masturbate inside of his astronaut costume was for nothing? (laughs) Uh, even if Shakespeare was actually married to modern-day actress Anne Hathaway, I don't know how much value your writing or crude drawings would have. Okay? Anyway, as hot as they are, (laughs) they're hot. And as realistic as you go into the the, uh, run-through of trying to masturbate in an astronaut suit, I mean, you did copious amounts of research to get that right. I will give you that. I'm I a, guess I'm a method deviant art poster. <laughs> That's right. At the end of the day, all that stuff is worth whatever you think it's worth. <laughs> cool. You could fill the bank with what I think these are worth. The spank bank. Send it in, Jerome. Onions. <laughs> Good God. Yeah. So uh, Shakespeare was married to Anne Hathaway when he was 18 and Anne was 26 at the time. A uh, bit of a Elizabethan cougar. Rawr. <laughs> that sounds a cougar. It's a right? cougar. That's what they sound like. That's John Cougar Mellencamp. Anyway, <laughs> Anne gave birth to her first child, Susanna, in 1583, followed by twins, Hamnet and Judith, uh, born in 1585. Susanna, the Shakespeare's firstborn, was reportedly delivered only six months after Anne and Bill Shakespeare were wed. That begs the question, was Shakespeare's marriage to Anne Hathaway of the shotgun variety? Bunkfunkers, if you're not familiar with the term, a shotgun wedding is essentially a wedding forced to happen at gunpoint. 
specifically shotgun point, <laughs> specifically a shotgun pointed by the father of the bride at the bridegroom who impregnated the bride to be outside of wedlock. Though, technically speaking, Shakespeare's wedding was almost certainly not a shotgun wedding, considering that shotguns had not yet been invented. Maybe it was a musket wedding or a cannon wedding or a poleaxe wedding or a crossbow wedding, but definitely not a shotgun wedding. That said, it still might have been a forced marriage due to Anne's premarital pregnancy. Or maybe my favorite, Andy, a trebuchet wedding. Oh, good choice. All you catapult motherfuckers can get out because we're trebuchet boys. <laughs> Catapults can fuck <laughs> off. You heard it here. This uh, There is some scholarly speculation that maybe Bill and Anne uh, didn't have the most tender of marriages. And I'm not talking chicken. I mean, Shakespeare... <laughs> I mean, Shakespeare did spend a good chunk of his adult life a hundred miles away from his family in a day when traveling a hundred miles, you know, wasn't the easiest thing in the world to do. So while Anne was home in Stratford taking care of the children, it's possible Slick Willie sauntered off to London to wet his whistle inside the theater uh, patrons and theater participants. Uh, There's, oh yeah, there's also the matter of Shakespeare's will. While being pretty standard in a lot of respects, there's also an interesting sentence that reads, quote, Item I give unto my wife, colon, my second best bed with the furniture, end quote. Some have interpreted this passage of the will, which was possibly the last thing added before the document was signed, as indicating a, a coldness in the Shakespeare's marriage. Maybe Shakespeare never really wanted to marry Anne Hathaway to begin with, but felt compelled to, maybe compelled by a trebuchet, we don't know, because of her pregnancy. Or, maybe, when Shakespeare died, Anne was unable to take care of herself, so she saw no need to leave any more of his estate to her. Uh, Perhaps the second best bed was the bed on which Bill and Anne regularly 69 and fucked hardcore in every sexual position known to Elizabeth in England. And so his bed had special significance, you know, and special stains. Mm Mm-hmm. And smells. Yeah, you know, maybe Anne was supported by her children in her old age. After all, Shakespeare left the bulk of his estate, which, by the way, was not insignificant, to his children. Uh, especially Susanna and her husband, who was a sometimes business partner of the Immortal Bard. But really, why Shakespeare added that line is not known. All these guesses are just that, guesses. Truth be told, We don't actually know that much about Shakespeare the person. While we have a a surprising amount of information about him, uh, given his likely social standing in Elizabethan England, there's still not exactly a trove of records out there about him. In fact, for the eight years or so after his children were born, it's not really clear what Shakespeare was up to. Again, speculation has run wild. Was he a country school teacher? A soldier? A deer thief? Was he taking care of horses for supporters of the theater scene in London? We don't know for sure. We also don't really know how Shakespeare came to London and got his start in the theater. Maybe it was because he was taking care of horses. I don't know. What we do know is that Shakespeare's name first shows up in print in 1592 in a deathbed pamphlet penned by dramatist Robert Greene called Greene's Groat's Worth of Wit, Bought with a Million of Repentance. Catchy title. Uh, In the pamphlet, (laughs) Greene, (laughs) Greene writes this, quote, There is an upstart crow, beautified with our feathers. 
that with his tiger's heart wrapped in a player's hide, supposes he is as well able to bombast out a blank verse as the best of you. And, being an absolute Johann factotum, is in his own conceit the only shake scene in a country. End quote. Now, what Green means by that exactly, I don't have a fucking clue, to be honest. <laughs> Scholars, though, say that it is that this is a frickin' sick-ass burn. So, you know, maybe this is such an epic roast, we can't even comprehend it. Uh, when the pamphlet was published after Green had died, a mutual acquaintance of Green and Shakespeare wrote a preface uh, to the pamphlet that included an apology to Shakespeare, uh, where he also vouched for the bard's character. We also know that from 1594 onwards, Shakespeare was a member of Lord Chamberlain's players, which became the King's Men after James I became king. Uh, after this, we know he wrote some plays and whatever, but like how they got popular and stuff. I mean, IK, dude. <laughs> well said, Andy. Uh, it sure seems like based on property records and all the stuff Shakespeare left in his will that, uh, well, he was financially successful. A recent hypothesis even suggests that Shakespeare was a hard-ass, grain-hoarding businessman who got put in trouble with the law for not sharing enough of his sweet, sweet grain. Of course, Shakespeare also could have just been trying to do right by his community, protecting them against potential famine. Uh, according to, uh, to, the, uh, to the researchers, after Shakespeare's death, a funeral statue of the Bard was erected in the Holy Trinity Church in Stratford which depicted Shakespeare holding a sack of grain. For full disclosure, in the 1700s, the monument was updated to show Shakespeare with a quill pen and tasseled cushion. Either way, Shakespeare was able to accumulate property and had multiple business ventures, so it seems likely that his career in the theater was at least marginally profitable. The rest is pretty much history. Here we are, 400 years after he died, talking about him still! Despite Shakespeare's impact on Western literature and culture, contemporary documentation about his works is limited. Some feel surprisingly so. This scarcity of evidence of behind-the-scenes information about Shakespeare's leads to to some to some it leads some to believe that William Shakespeare from Stratford upon Avon didn't actually write the works attributed to him. Well, bunk funkers, we are left with the obvious question. If big bad Bill Shakespeare didn't whip out his quill and pen these seminal works of English literature, then who done it? We'll get to that, but as I am wont to do, let's talk for a minute about how Shakespeare deniers came to be. Let me just uh let me just take off my shirt and pants and oh. jock strap really quick. Oh. oh god, here we go again. Okay. Oh, I left my oh. socks on. Somehow that makes it worse. Um, so perhaps the original Shakespeare doubter was a guy by the name of James Wilmot. Uh, in 1781, Wilmot allegedly began to work on a biography of William Shakespeare. Wilmot traveled to Stratford-upon-Avon and visited Shakespeare's home and all the libraries in the area. During his investigation, Wilmot was stunned to find no literary evidence of Shakespeare's. He didn't find any books or personal correspondence written by the bard. He didn't even find hand-scrawled notes in the margins of the family Bible. No Bible margin notes. None. <laughs> Incredible. Oh. oh, boggle. It seemed to Wilmot 
that there was no evidence at all to suggest that William Shakespeare had even ever read a book or written anything in his own hand. Wilmot began to wonder whether Shakespeare actually wrote the works attributed to him. Allegedly, Wilmot shared his suspicions and even the name of the suspected true author of the works of William Shakespeare with his friend, James Corton Cowell. Wilmot did not, however, share any of this information publicly, only with James Corton Cowell. In fact, we only know about Wilmot's hypothesis because James Corton Cowell did a series of lectures on the subject in 1805. Boy, uh, that paragraph had a fever. And the only prescription was a little more James Corton Cowbell. Oh, Cowell Bell. Ah, that's that's not my William Shakespeare. Here, let me do let me do my Christopher Walken. Okay. How does Christopher Walken sound? <laughs> that fe- that that paragraph had a fever, and that the only prescription had a fever, and the only prescription was James Corton Cowell Bell. I'll work on it. Okay. Anyway, we'll come back to that. So who allegedly was James Wilmot's suspected true author? None other than the legendary Elizabethan statesman and philosopher, Francis Bacon. I love his meat. Well, so did James Wilmot, according to James Corton Cowell. (laughs) Okay. That said, it all might be just a big damn lie. Those bastards lied to me. (laughs) <laughs> the lectures delivered by James Corton Cowell and, in fact, the entire Wilmot story may be a forgery created in the 20th century to prop up the hypothesis that Francis Bacon is the true author of Shakespeare's works. At the time, the idea was uh, declining in popularity in favor of another candidate who we'll discuss momentarily. So let's talk about Francis Bacon. <laughs> Sir Francis Bacon, Viscount St. Alban, was an ambassador, a successful barrister and legal scholar, a member of Parliament, the English legislative body, not the band, uh, a philosopher, prolific letter writer, and Lord Chancellor of England during the reign of James I. Bacon was one of the most impressive minds of the Elizabethan era, even getting credit for laying the groundwork for the scientific revolution that would come after his time. Even if the James Wilmot story is a fake, Bacon has been suspected as the true author of Shakespeare's works by others for a long time. In 1857, Delia Bacon, uh, no relation to Francis Bacon, and William H. Smith, and no relation to William H. Macy, each published books <laughs> purporting to expose the actual author of the literature attributed to Shakespeare. The basic conceit of Smith's Bacon hypothesis is that Shakespeare was some chump actor who was paid off for the use of his name by sexy, intellectual, poetic, rich Elizabethan Chad, Francis Bacon. (laughs) Delia Bacon's book, The Philosophy of the Plays of Shakespeare Unfolded, alleges that Shakespeare's works were written by a group of important, important people of the time, led by Francis Bacon uh, and including Walter Raleigh and Edmund Spencer. Now, as we mentioned, the Wilmot story may have been created to prop up the Bacon hypothesis, which was becoming less popular in favor of another possible writer of Shakespeare, Edward de Vere, the 17th Earl of Oxford, Shakespeare. Thy name is Earl. Anyway, de Vere was a, uh, or was it de Vere? A de Vere. Okay, de Vere. My bad. That's fine. 
Devere was a preteen sensation, ascending to become the Earl of Oxford at the ripe old age of 12. The Earl was a well-known supporter of writers, having many books dedicated to him, including books written by Robert Greene. You remember him from earlier, Bunkfunkers. Anyway, Edward Devere was mentioned in Delia Bacon's book as an associate of Sir Walter Raleigh's, though uh, not directly implicated as being the real Shakespeare. Devere was first suggested seriously as the true author of Shakespeare's works in 1920 by English teacher J.T. Looney. No relation to the Looney Tunes. Oh. Looney claims that uh, Devere's life bore some semblance to Shakespeare characters. Bertram from All's Well That Ends Well and Hamlet from Hamlet. Looney also said that poems written by Devere were uh, similar to Shakespeare's early work. Uh, the The poems known to have been written by Devere were written when he was uh, younger. Devere was born in 1550, 14 years before William Shakespeare, and Devere stopped writing poems just before Shakespeare's work starts to pop up. Proponents of Devere also say that he was known as a playwright in his day, yet none of his plays are believed to exist today. The Devere camp uh, says that actually... The Devere camp says that Yeah, and he got a little typo in there, huh? The Devere Camps <laughs> says that actually supports their claims, though. There you go. What the, what the Devere Camp says? That's that... Oh. That none of his plays exist today okay. supports I their see. claim that he's right. the true author. Okay. Well, you know what? Maybe, uh, hey, you know what Shakespeare would do there? Maybe he'd put a little... Uh, he put a little a couple markings there, so the, uh, the actor would know to uh, inflect. (laughs) I'll take that note under consideration. Yeah, you take that note under consideration. Okay. Anyway, the Devere camp says that actually supports their claims, though. If Devere was writing plays and none of them were in his name, that must mean he used a pseudonym, which must have been William Shakespeare. Oh, yes. The hypothesis goes that Devere wrote as William Shakespeare because of the political content in some of Shakespeare's plays. Devere was, after all, part of the nobility, and he risked his family's reputation by writing for the theater, which some say was considered to be a uh, undesirable hobby in Elizabethan times, not unlike being an improviser or <laughs> podcasters. Uh, those are unsavory hobbies at any time in history. <laughs> um. Now for a little talk about the nomenclature of these arguments. Uh, Believers in Edward de Vere being the true author of Shakespeare's works call themselves Oxfordians after de Vere's title. People who believe that William Shakespeare is the true author of Shakespeare's works call themselves Stratfordians after Stratford-upon-Avon. I think that just kind of goes to show how popular a suspect Edward de Vere has become. Uh, His proponents even have a group name, Though, for the record, people who think Francis Bacon wrote the works of Shakespeare have their own name, too. Baconians. Baconian is also the correct term to use when referring to me, though, obviously, for a different reason. Now, yeah, you get a pound of bacon in the, ma- in the mail every month. <laughs> yeah, I, that's that's accurate. And uh, my blood is uh, like 49% bacon at this point. <laughs> um now, You're so no, close to almost over 50. Yeah, I, that's the goal is to get 51% bacon fat in the blood. More bacon than, more bacon than human. That's, that's the Andy yeah. Hart story. 
<laughs> I'm a real $6 a pound man. Now, bunk funkers, if you're an Oxfordian, you see a lot of things that could lead you to believe that Devere was the author, right? Devere was once described by a contemporary this way, quote, thy countenance shakes spears, end quote. Oxfordians see similarities to Devere's life and Shakespeare's plays. Polonius from Hamlet is widely understood as a parody of Devere's father-in-law, who was also Devere's guardian when he was a young earl. Dr. Robert Strittmatter studied the Devere family Bible and found that the more frequently a biblical passage was referred to, was referenced by Shakespeare, the more likely it was to be marked or have a note next to it in the Devere uh, family Bible. Oxfordians think that because of the lack of evidence of Shakespeare reading or writing at home, that Shakespeare may have been illiterate. Oxfordians also point out that Shakespeare doesn't seem to have been recognized as a writer during his lifetime by the people of Stratford. Remember the statue of him holding grain instead of, you know, writing stuff? Right, 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 right. Well, those are all well and good speculative points, Andy, but uh, there's one big fat Greek wedding of a problem with the Oxfordian hypothesis. Edward de Vere, the 17th Earl of Oxford, died in June 1604. And why is that a problem, Art? Why can't I just leave the dead alone, Art? Valid questions, bunk funkers. But here's the scoop. Shakespeare wrote some plays that were dated after Edward de Vere became the 17th Earl of Heaven. Plays like Antony and Cleopatra, The Tempest, and Macbeth. Oxfordians might tell you that the plays were written before de Vere died, and the generally accepted timeline of Shakespeare plays was made up to obscure the true author's identity. Or they might say that later Shakespearean plays show evidence of revision and collaboration, which is because de Vere was dead, so other playwrights had to complete his unfinished works. Well, one piece of evidence Oxfordians cite is that Shakespeare's is Shakespeare's sonnets. The sonnets were published in 1609, so after De Vere died, but seven years before William Shakespeare of Stratford died, and included a dedication page, which was signed by the publisher rather than the author, which Oxfordians say indicates the author was deceased at the time of the publication. Additionally, the dedication page refers to Shakespeare as, quote, our ever-living poet, end quote, which, which Oxfordians say would not be used to describe a still actually physically alive person. The debate between Stratfordians and anti-Stratfordians, uh, anti-Stratfordians being a blanket term for anyone who doesn't think William Shakespeare of Stratford wrote the things attributed to him, this debate continued to rage into the 20th century, with the United States Supreme Court even getting involved. In 1987, Supreme Court Justices uh, William Brennan, Harry Blackman, and John Paul Stevens held a mock trial where they considered the authorship question. Brennan found in favor of the Stratfordians, but Blackman and Stevens weren't convinced. Stevens was so publicly unconvinced that he eventually even received the Oxfordian of the Year Award, given by the Shakespeare Oxford Fellowship. Uh, all this despite the fact that Stevens never definitively said he believed De Vere to be the true author. Former Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia did actually declare himself to be an Oxfordian, though, even if he didn't participate in the authorship mock trial. So, what do the eggheads say? 
And you know who I'm talking about, bunk funkers, these friggin' eggheads who just study Shakespeare or Elizabethan theory all day long, hold up in their friggin' ivory towers. Come on. You guys know the type, the classic trope. Here's what the eggheads think about it. The available evidence about William Shakespeare of Stratford-upon-Avon, while somewhat limited in a way, is still more evidence than we have about most other actors or playwrights of the time, and more evidence than we have about other people of Shakespeare's social status. There are records showing William Shakespeare as a member in good standing of his acting company and theater. Importantly, eggheads say this, Shakespeare's name is the only one on all the plays and sonnets. There's really not any concrete evidence to suggest that Billy Shakespeare did not write all the things credited to him. Take Edward de Vere, for example. Elizabethan literary historians, Jesus Christ, these are some real eggheads now, Andy, take issue with how Oxfordians approach the authorship question. While maybe there's not some thick with two C's stacks of evidence about Shakespeare's life, there's basically no evidence that de Vere was actually the author. This absence of evidence leads Oxfordians to use a lot of circumstantial evidence, like vague links between De Vere's life and Shakespeare's plays, to make their argument. In the case of Francis Bacon, these eggheads, which, you know, eggs and bacon, eggheads and bacon, bacon, they go together, you know what I'm saying? (laughs) These eggheads find it hard to believe that Bacon would actually have the time to secretly create another author's entire canon. After all, Bacon had plenty of his own writing projects and a career as a barrister and government official, not to mention his letter writing. My stars, Andy, he wrote a lot of letters. He sure did. (laughs) My stars. (laughs) Your stars. Also, Bacon was an accomplished writer all on his own. Eggheads feel like if you compare the prose that is actually attributed to Frank Bacon, it just doesn't seem like the same person who could have been Slick Willie Shakespeare. Historian and egghead, Frank Wadsworth. <laughs> I don't know if I don't know if that's a title that he gives himself that's, or we're yeah, giving him, but it's official. You know what? <laughs> Frank, he had this Frank to Wadsworth, say. PhD egghead. <laughs> he went to egghead you. Fighting chicks. Anyway, <laughs> had this to say about the bacon, uh, the Baconian, the Baconian argument. It, quote, expressed dissatisfaction with the number of historical records of Shakespeare's career, followed by the substantial uh, substitution of a wealth of inimaginative conjectures in their place. End quote. That is some egghead writing right there. And really... That's true for pretty much all of the uh, anti-Stratfordian hypotheses, right? People feel like there's not enough evidence to support that William Shakespeare, the man from Stratford-upon-Avon, actually wrote everything he's accredited to. So, to fix that problem, anti-Stratfordians turn to suspecting other people as the true author, despite the fact that there's no direct evidence that anyone other than Big Willie Shakespeare himself, Big Dick Billy himself wrote every last word attributed to him. Critics of anti-Stratfordian arguments also say that these arguments are, at their core, just classist. Critics say that some people just can't accept that William Shakespeare, a good old country boy from way outside the city, could have gotten enough dadgum education to write the works bearing his name. 
Doubters say that the true author must have been someone of a higher station, a noble with the finest education. Historians, though, are quick to point out that Shakespeare's father was basically the mayor of Stratford. Shakespeare's upbringing, while not exceptionally wealthy, was almost certainly better financially than most other folks in the area. Stratford also had a decent grammar school, and while we don't know with real certainty that Shakespeare went to school there, it seems likely that a town official, uh, the mayor even, would send his children to the school paid for by town funds. In the Stratford school, young Billy Shakespeare would have learned the Latin language, studied classic literature, philosophy, and histories. So while Shakespeare lacked a university education, it seems likely that he got all the information he needed at the Stratford school. The subjects taught at Stratford are central to the works attributed to Shakespeare. Further, the Taming of the Shrew even references the grammar book that was in use at the Stratford School. So, was William Shakespeare from Stratford-upon-Avon the great bard of literary legend? Or are his timeless classics the work of somebody else or multiple someone else's? Well, Bunk Funkers, we'll let you be the judge. Was it William Shakespeare, Francis Bacon, Edward de Vere, Christopher Marlowe, William Butts, Miguel de Cervantes, King Edward VI, Anne Hathaway, King James I, the Jesuits, Henry Paget, Mary, Queen of Scots, Walter Raleigh, the Rosicrucians, Edmund Spencer, Sheikh Zubair bin William, Queen Elizabeth I? Yes, Funk Funkers. Literally, literally all of those people have been proposed as possibly the true author of Shakespeare's work. At the end of the day, though, for all the names and all the wild speculation, maybe this mystery is ultimately much ado about nothing. Hey, welcome back, Vunk Vungers. That was our research of William Shakespeare. William Shakespeare, uh, the finest playwright and actor to ever grace the stage of foggy London town. You know what, Andy? (sighs) Yeah? I gotta, I mean, this is, I gotta tell you, I'm a little peeved. Oh, God. I'm a little peeved, Andy. You fucking peeved? You know what? When 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 Bunker first started abducting us, and mm-hmm. this all first started going down, mm-hmm. I said, fine. You know what? Whatever topic. You want to mm-hmm. talk about aliens? You want to talk about, uh, talk about, you know, you want to talk about uh, the evil things governments have done to people? Mm-hmm. You know, you want to talk about all this wild shit? You want to talk about having sex with ghosts? <laughs> fine by me. I'm fine with that. But never in my life did I ever think we'd stoop this low to besperch the name of the great immortal bard himself, William Shakespeare. Wow, you! I cannot believe it. You're taking personal umbrage at this. Oh, my umbrage, my umbrage. Even Anthony Anthony Kiedis wouldn't hang out in my umbrage. Even <laughs> even the sickest of 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 trolls wouldn't tell riddles to cross my umbrage, Andy. That's how hot it is. Wow. That's how fiery it is. Wow. Well, uh, boy. No, I'm just joking, dude. I much prefer Shrekspear. <laughs> the immortal <laughs> ogre. <laughs> yeah, <we're laughs> Shrekspear. 
To be or not to be. <laughs> Donkey. <laughs> I'm making waffles, Horatio. <laughs> oh God. Um. No, I think it's fine. This is a fun. This is a fun topic that fun. I think. Yeah. Uh. Well, let's you know. Let's talk a little bit about our experiences with the Bard himself, Andy. Okay. We, you know, yeah. We mentioned that uh, we both took some college classes. I have been lucky enough to actually visit the Globe Theater. It's very neat. It's oh, a neat when little you, place. When I you saw did Fringe. Right. That's right. I did the Fringe Festival many many years ago. Um. That's the the uh, the worldwide festival there in. Uh, 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 Edinburgh. 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 Homer. Um, Homer Shakespeare. That's right. And um, I think we saw. What did we see? Did we see anything there or did we just visit it? You probably I saw the theater. Remember. We definitely saw the theater, but I can't remember if we actually saw a play or not. Mm-hmm. I saw a lot of Shakespearean plays. At the fringe, I saw a really cool. This isn't Shakespearean, but I saw a cool rendition of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, which is kind of like a uh, modern comedy about Rosencrantz and Guildenstern after they leave uh, Hamlet. Yeah, it's a. Uh, uh, for those of you who haven't seen it, it's a. Uh, it's basically a buddy cop musical. Uh, one of the run of the original spinoffs, uh, really. Yeah, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. Is mm-hmm. the name of the play? Yeah, uh, but it's very absurdist and it's existential tragic comedy. First stage at the Edinburgh sort of, sort of like, oh. sort of like our careers. Oh yes, absurdist. That's existential, what we call it. Existential tragic comedy. When, when we when we do comedy for people and they go, I don't get it. We go, well, it's absurdist tragic comedy. So you know, <laughs> don't feel bad. You're not supposed to get it. Um, but other than that, yeah, you know, I took some college courses. I have not read every Shakespeare play that has existed, but I've read uh, probably more than I would imagine the average high schooler has read. You know, most people <laughs> know Hamlet. Most people know Romeo and Juliet. Right. Macbeth. Mm-hmm. Um, the Tempest, I would say. And Taming of the Shrew, only because they made that movie with uh, Heath Ledger and... Uh, I know, I know. The movie you're referencing is Ten Things I Hate About You." But Ten I've, Things I've, I Hate About I've You. I've never, I've never even seen that movie. Oh wow! I've never, I've never I've read, read *Taming of the Shrew* uh, either. I was in a play based the, uh, on *Taming of the Shrew*, though. Oh, mm-hmm, in high school. And uh, what uh, do you remember what it was called? Um, n- no, I don't. Uh, I think that I played the King of Teens or something. Oh, no. oh, you are the king oh, of no, teens. Oh, no, 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 wait, no, wait. That was based on A Midsummer <laughs> Night's Dream. Um, That's the other one. Um, yeah. I was in this one about Taming of the Shrew, and I think I was a, like an Irish dad or something. Perfectly casted in both. King of <laughs> teens. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, when you think of Tiger Beat Magazine and other cool teen things, don't you think of Andy? <laughs> I was... I even, do. Even back then, I was just oozing cool, and you were. I was oozing. I mean, I was oozing. I've you were oozing, oozing and losing it. <laughs> yeah. And yes, uh, by that I mean his cum. <laughs> Art. It's called acting. Okay. 
That's how uh, insufferable losers like me can pretend to be the king of teens. Uh, But I would imagine that most people haven't delved into some of the other tragedies and a lot of the histories. I imagine unless you took a course in college, they usually, well, maybe the Henry V, but like Mm -hmm. Richard III and all these other books Mm -hmm. that are about the War of the Roses, essentially, which is what they're all about. They're actually, you know, you think like that sounds boring as fuck. They're actually really fascinating. I actually really like the histories Mm -hmm. that Shakespeare did. Do you have any thoughts on those? Um, yeah, I, I personally have never have never read the histories. Um, you know, I think uh, you ticked off a few of the the big ones like Hamlet and Macbeth. Uh, I think that uh, Romeo and Juliet. You know, I think a lot of people are familiar with. Um, I took a college course, and, and I want to talk about my college course uh, some too when the situation allows. Uh, you can't go to not talk about it right now. I don't give a shit, dude. One of the things, one of the one of the plays we talked about. Um, I just want to say this, like generally, because uh, I found this sort of off-putting. Um, it, so I took this class. It was it was on the plays of Shakespeare. Um, I took the class because, well, I mean, let's be honest. It, it satisfied a general education credit for me, right? Like it was a credit I needed in order. Yeah you know, as part of my university education, but you know, within that framework, Ohio state's a big place. You can pick a lot of different things. I picked it because I was interested in learning more about the works of Shakespeare. I didn't know that much about them. And, um, you know, we talked about a few different plays. One of the plays we talked about was, uh, the merchant of, of Venice. Um, yeah, I almost said the merchant of Venus because, uh, yesterday, I think I saw that episode of Futurama, uh, with uh, Harold Zoid and uh, there's like you know they do the Oscars thing uh, and they mention the Merchant of Venus Sir Sir Lawrence um, but anyway that's, that's neither here nor there so we're talking about the Merchant of Venice in my college class and um, I, I gotta be honest I took this class winter quarter of my freshman year I mean, I didn't go that much, uh, if I'm being real honest, because it was cold a lot and it was easier to stay inside. Um, Listen, I'm not going to judge you for skipping class. (laughs) Thank you. There's plenty of other things that I'm going to judge you on. (laughs) Yeah. You know, when you're at the pearly gates, Andy. (laughs) And there you are, judging the quick and the dead. Um, (laughs) So, so, but, but I went you know, more often than not. Um, but, uh, I skipped a few, but we, we, you know, we talked about the merchant of Venice. There's some pirates. Uh, and you know, I kind of have a, I kind of have a thing about this whole, you know, like I, I sort of feel like Shakespeare's works are almost over analyzed at this point to the point, to the point where it's like, what else can we say about them? They just, sort of are what they are at this point. Yeah. Uh, the only thing we can really do is like try to understand the, the historical context uh, to help shed light on things that maybe don't make sense to us right. hundreds of years later. Um, so one of the things that we talked about were these pirates. It was like, okay, so there's pirates. So uh, in Shakespeare's day, I'm pretending to be the professor now, in Shakespeare's day, uh, pirates would have been uh, outcasts from society, unlike now where pirates are fully integrated into society. <laughs> uh, but, uh, 
But these would have been outcasts from society who likely would have had to uh, to live apart from the rest uh, of of people, uh, likely on an island. And because of their their outcast status, uh, you know, these people were likely to be, um, you, you know, s- separated so much from society that they build almost their own society uh, wherever they are able to find shelter. And uh, likely, it wouldn't have included uh, very many women. Um, so it's it's likely that these pirates would have would have been engaged in in homosexual acts, and so maybe what Shakespeare's trying to tell us is that these characters are gay. <laughs> I was kind of like, well, maybe, but like, couldn't it be like? Doesn't it kind of make sense if they're just pirates? Like, <laughs> I mean, like, sure, maybe they are gay, but. Like, does it, does that change the reading of it? Like, oh, well, I get it. They're gay pirates. Like, yeah. I mean, at, at some point, I feel like, and I don't want to, I don't want to take a dump on like Shakespearean scholars here, but at some point, it's like, are you just like, you just trying to find something new to say about it, and so you're like, no, you're reaching I, a little bit. Yeah, here. that's a stretch. That's a stretch. I think, yeah, I, I mean, I agree with you. I think it's fine to do some modern day, like, oh, like, doesn't this kind of, it's like, in my course, they, he mentioned, my professor mentioned, like, why does Shakespeare, like, why are we still reading it today? And like, why is it still matter? Why do we feel like it's like, he's always talking about modern things? It's because at the very core, Shakespeare wrote, like, plays about simple shit. You know, it's like, his plays are about like, greed or money or death and like tragedy like like it's like simple concepts like obviously but then he like funnels in lots of little specifics but it's like you know romance or awkward uh, situations where you get turned into a donkey and you want to fuck some other chick but then some other chick wants to fuck you and you know love triangles <laughs> the same we've all like, been there. you know it's we've all been there uh Especially if you're a big fan of Shrekspeare, there's lots of donkeys. <laughs> right. Lots of donkey love triangles in Shrekspeare. Uh, but I mean, I agree with you. I think it's like they kind of stretch for stuff sometimes. I remember I did, I struggled in the course because the professor was always like, yeah, but like, you know, dig a little bit deeper about the meaning. And I was like, what the fuck am I writing in these papers? Like, I feel like <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I'm like, I'm digging so far. It's like I wrote like this. I wrote like my end of the year thesis on King Lear and I watched the movie Ron by Akira Kurosawa, which is a great fucking film and you should watch it whether or not you've seen King Lear. It's incredible. And I was comparing and contrasting the two and like trying to, I don't know, make all these like judgments about why Akira Kurosawa chose that and what it means and blah, 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 blah. And it's just like, I don't know. I felt constantly like I was digging. (laughs) Right. It's like, I don't know. I could only say so much, but I mean, that's the thing, right? At the end of the day, these plays are about simple concepts that are timeless. Mm -hmm. They're timeless. You know, Romeo and Juliet, it's like forbidden romance. You know, your parents don't want you to go date that other person family because they look down upon that family or they, you know, they're whatever. It's like anyone can identify with that shit, right? Like, mm-hmm. it's so simple. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I recently read a, a book about um, 
a poetry in the English language uh, that was uh, c- compiled and and edited by uh, the the now uh, deceased literary critic Harold Bloom, and one of the things he talks about when he talks about Shakespeare is that uh, what what sort of has Shakespeare standing head and shoulders above um, the rest of of English language authors is that his characters always operate to the height of their intelligence that that that's like the thing that he sees as being the groundbreaking thing that really endures in Shakespeare's writing is that he he writes characters who always operate at the height of their intelligence like they're smart and it comes through you know and not in a in right. a genuine way not in a not in a tacked on kind of like no. way where they make a stupid choice just to move the plot along. I mean, we've all seen this. Uh, we've all watched Game of Thrones. Um, oh yeah, but it's it's like it's it it does the characters justice, and the characters have so much life and vibrancy because of that that they become almost entities unto their own, not just yeah. a device in a in a larger story. And and Shakespeare was really smart about uh, certain things, you know, like. Mm-hmm. The political commentary, he always made the fool or the jester in the story actually deliver the meaning and the uh, the 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 political commentary of the time. Like the 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 fool, the the clown would always deliver like the uh, the real truth. That way, you know, when these perform were performed in front of, <coughs> excuse me, the nobility. They would sit there and say like, oh, well, he's having the fool say all this stuff that I don't agree with that would get you uh, sent to this, sent to the, uh, the, 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 uh, the guillotine or whatever. Yeah. But because it's, you know, because it's coming from the mouth of the fool, it's like, ah, we can look past it. Ha ha ha. It's supposed to be funny. But like, really, it's, you know, spreading seeds of of dissent in a way. Right. Um, It's like we've heard in, uh. Some of the uh, overpriced improv classes we took the the purpose of the the purpose of the jester the purpose of the fool is is to tell the monarch the truth, but in a way that the monarch can stomach it. Right, exactly. Uh, but in a way, you know, like again, there's a lot of work here, and we are talking about it four hundred years. Like we're you know saying that they're simple. I don't mean for that to mean like stupid or dumb. It's like, no, they're very important works in it. But that's the thing. It's hard to imagine one person developing all these great works, you know, like especially we do that a lot with other things in history, you know, like it's it's hard to imagine the founding fathers establishing all the shit that we're still discussing now in our Bill of Rights in the Constitution and stuff, right? It's it's hard to imagine the Greek philosophers developing all the things they developed or da Vinci or whoever, right? Like it's, it's, we look at it from this modern perspective and we're like, how the fuck did these guys have these breakthroughs? You know? Yeah. It's, but I think it's all relative. Of course. Yeah. It's all, it's, it's, it's very interesting uh, how things end up being transmitted. I mean, what grabs the, the attention of people at large at the time and then also, somehow can get transmitted to people outside of that time. I mean, I 
within the last five years uh, read translations I'd never read before of Homer's uh, Iliad and Odyssey. That's I right. mean, th- these are like thousands of years old at this point, and yet, yeah, people people are still reading them. It, it's it's incredible. It, but uh, I mean, what do you what do you think about that though? That like attributing these great works to one person because I feel like from this modern perspective, we're always kind of skeptical of it. I don't know, maybe that's wrong, but in a way, like you think about like Shakespeare's life, you know, you got started with stuff a lot younger and there also wasn't as much stuff to know. I don't know. Maybe I'm kind of being a little, uh, but maybe that's a little wrong, but I don't know. It's like, we're we're like with the Greek philosophers. It's like you learn some math, you learn a few languages, you learned a little history, you're good to go. You know, it's not like nowadays where it's like, you've got a compendium of mathematics and social studies and history and science and language and fucking computers. And you know, God, there's so much stuff to learn nowadays that they didn't have back then. I I mean, I think it's, I, I don't know that I necessarily am going to go all in and say that I agree with you, but I'll say that, yeah. uh, like in terms of, uh, what's written down, like what we have textbooks on, there's, there's a lot more things to read now, but I think that honestly, it's in a way, maybe there's more information that's available but i mean i think that's the big thing is it's availability of information that if you were a student in ancient times you would have had available whatever was at the school where you went you know you wouldn't you wouldn't have had access to literally every piece of human information which is what we have uh access to constantly um in our lives i mean i looked up the other day what the names of the characters in the Candyland game are, and <laughs> like, as you do, and you you love board game lore. Aristotle never had to deal with stuff like that. Never could have had access <laughs> to that if he didn't know the names of the characters. Like if he didn't know Mister Mint's name, like he's not finding out. Like he's gonna have well, to write. Thank God, he's gonna have to write somebody and find out. If Aristotle had Candyland, he would have been stuck in the molasses pits and he would have never, <laughs> never developed the great works and things that he wrote or trained Plato or any of that stuff. He would have Plato with Aristotle. He would have never made it to Queen Frostine's castle for a tasty soft serve ice cream cone, that's for sure. <laughs> and a little something else, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> Come play my game, Candyland After Dark. God, the erotic version of Candyland. <laughs> Oh you get yeah! To fuck the peppermint guy. Come over here, Nana Nut. <laughs> <laughs> Nana, is that really her name? Yeah, it's her oh, name. Oh God! <laughs> come on, Candyland. Candyland creators, come on. <laughs> she used to be Grandma Nut, but in the Nana Nut dude. modern version, she's Nana Nut. Yeah, I've seen Nana Nut on a few uh, porn searches <laughs> myself. <laughs> Nanny Nut. Uh, yeah. That's my favorite website. <laughs> um, well, well, let's get into it. You know, what okay. what, what theories are kind of drawing you closer to the Mandy, huh? Which ones do you want to open up and read? 
Uh, which one do you want to perform for all the denizens of the Globe Theater? Uh, I'm going to be honest with you, Art. I'm straight up going to be honest with you. I am a oh, full-on Stratfordian after researching this. Whoa, like, dude. I do, oh, I do tits. not. I did not find anything that made me go, well, that makes sense. Dude, you're gonna make me nana nut after hearing that. Yeah, you know, you know, uh, you know, Ian, buckle up because I'm about to say it. Occam's razor, uh, and yeah, Ian, yeah, you hear that? Mock Ian? me for saying Occam's razor, but mock here we us are. some more. Why don't you? <laughs> I suppose you've Fucking read all the Shakespeare we'll you- plays. Uh, we'll nana nut all over his face. <laughs> <We're> gonna- <laughs> uh, yeah, we're gonna. We're gonna come on. Follow up on it. Lord Licorice. Yeah. Whatever. I don't know. We're going to lick Licorice. Licorice. You. You're going to lick or wish we didn't uh, friggin' yeah. get involved in this. Yeah. But what's your Occam's razor now, Andy? I, I, you know, I think that uh, I think that in the research, the relevant information is that people, these anti-Stratfordians feel like there's not enough evidence to say that Shakespeare, William Shakespeare from Stratford-upon-Avon wrote these works that are with bearing his name. And so their solution to that problem is to pick people who, for whom there's absolutely no evidence at all. It's like, <laughs> there's not enough evidence for Shakespeare, but here's somebody who has no evidence <laughs> like there's as much evidence that I wrote Shakespeare's plays as there is evidence that Edward de Vere did it like there is well li- go ahead the the plays aren't you know fucked up enough to have, to have <laughs> yeah. be authored well, I mean, by you yeah I mean clearly if they did the same analysis to Francis Bacon like they if they gave me the Francis Bacon treatment and analyzed my writing next to Shakespeare's they'd be like ah oh, this clearly there's no way this degenerate simp could have done this <laughs> you're you just you just called yourself a simp yeah uh there's there's no uh there's no pawn star references in any of the plays <laughs> There's no uh, mentions of the process of how sausage is made. <laughs> there's no uh, there's no obscure Beach Boys facts yeah. ever in there's any no, recorded Shakespeare plays. There's no just blatant Simpsons references or direct yeah. quotes in there. Um, there's no inappropriate mentions of abortion. (laughs) (laughs) Some of the hallmarks of my writing. That's right. Here's my thing though, Andy. Go ahead. Uh, I mean, I think I agree with you. I agree with you. You know, I'm leaning towards being a Stratfordian myself as well, but leaning toward Mm. Shakespeare didn't live in a vacuum. Maybe he, I mean, maybe he did. I don't know. He could have, no, they hadn't been invented yet. He couldn't have lived. Yeah. At most, he would have lived in a broom. Yeah, uh, a huge broom. He had a broom, he had a broom-shaped house <laughs> in London where he stayed, <laughs> right next to the little old lady who lived in a shoe. Yeah. Which is how he wrote the little old lady who lived in a shoe. Her name also was Nana Nut. Yeah, that's right. A lot of sick shit went down in that house. Let me tell you, Shakespeare banged Nana Nut. Yeah. Um. He probably had help, right, from fellow playwrights and friends at some point, right? Like, don't you think? Like he, like like he probably, uh, he probably at one point went up to his his friend, 
Craig Basket Weaver and was like, Oi, Craig, Lady Macbeth, right? She's got all this imaginary blood on her hands and what's she going to do with it? And Craig's like, well, probably try to wash it off, I reckon. Oh, brilliant. Cheers, love. All right. (laughs) Going to put that into the play then. I don't know. You know, it's like they probably, uh, you know, he, he probably had to have a little help from somebody along the line, right? Yeah, I mean, in some of the some of the later works, people, you know, that's sort of the feeling is that there's some there's some collaborative efforts or uh, other other playwrights getting involved in it. I mean, I'm sure he like probably read things to other people or yeah. got opinions on things and maybe changed, you know, what he was doing because of that. Uh, I think that's. You know, he was working in a creative environment, right? Like, uh, true. I mean, he was an actor too, not just a not just a playwright. So, uh, I, I'm sure that there was some some level of collaboration, even if it wasn't. You know, even if these plays don't come out exactly as a group effort or something. You know, he's doing uh, most of the heavy lifting. It probably wasn't yeah. like a writer's room environment. I mean. Right, you know, but there probably was some feedback. I mean, uh, what was I going to say? Well, you know, it's kind of like to defeat my own point here. It's like back in his day, the only thing he focused on was writing. And it's like he had the means to only focus on like writing and theater and creative stuff. And it's like, when you have the means to do that, you get pretty fucking good at it, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. it makes you sprinkle in a little bit of just general have a knack and talent for it and put someone who works at it every single day of their short life. Like, yeah, they're going to get pretty fucking good at it and they're going to write a lot of different fucking plays and shows and shit, right? Like, yeah, you know? Well, he wrote Titus Andronicus, right? Titus Andronicus is his first play and it's, one of the uh, edgiest and bloodiest plays ever. Uh, spoiler alert, like, it's a tragedy, so... I mean, this shouldn't be a spoiler, but everyone dies at the end of Shakespearean tragedies. That's why they're tragedies. Um, well, and there's other reasons. They're they're generally uh, are less... But generally, the, the tragedies are marked by everyone dying. But Titus Andronicus really fucking... Uh, really takes the cake there. <laughs> with the amount of blood and uh you know even if you google Titus Andronicus by William Shakespeare it says probably in collaboration with George George Peel so right off the bat it even says you know the that he collaborated with some people it's just but at the end of the day Shakespeare's name's on the play and you know really i mean he has he has a lot of works attributed to him, right? Yeah. But it's like, what are we talking about here? We're talking about like 15 plays in a decade. So, yeah. you know, it's like he was in he was in London working as an actor and writing for 20 years, basically. That, that's a long time. So it's like, you know, over the course of 20 years writing 30 plays, it's a lot of output. But yeah, I think to your point... It's also, this was what he was doing, right? 
right. you know i mean this is this is what he was dedicating his time to so it seems yeah. likely to me that you know it's like henry the 6th parts you know 1 2 3 you know what i mean like that's all kind of the same subject yes you know it's not necessarily like he had to immerse himself in a completely different era of history or something in this you know there's three that's three plays right so right i'm not trying to diminish the <laughs> the outcome here because it sounds kind oh, of like fuck shakespeare. Fuck, fuck shakespeare fuck him didn't work hard enough uh lazy ass uh try 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 Starting a podcast. Try doing a weekly okay? podcast, Shakespeare, okay? We've done more Try- episodes of this podcast than yeah. you wrote of anything, you piece of shit. Fucking loser piece of shit. Try doing improv for, at a minimum, two people in the audience <laughs> in the back room of a bar in Chicago, okay? And then come talk to me, Shakespeare. Come talk to me when you've had to perform live for two people. <laughs> You tell us. We're also performing. Tell us how that feels. Shakespeare. Shit spear. (laughs) Shit smear. Shit smear. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Fuck that guy. Anyway. Anyway, uh, greatest writer in the world. (laughs) A mortal bard. Super great guy. (laughs) Never forget his name. Um No, and 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 uh and if you look, and I think this gives some other credit to Shakespeare, being that he was an actor, if you look at the way that the plays were originally written, if you can get a copy of the first folio, which is kind of a recreation of how the plays were originally written. Right. You have you have ri- the original manuscript, right? Right. They yeah. are uh uh they uh they're written in this it looks like this. It looks like English, but there's all these weird markings and the punctuation is super weird and the grammar isn't correct. And that's because Shakespeare wrote these plays with the actors in mind because, you know, these actors were, they didn't have like all these directors and all this stuff. It's like you kind of just, you know, you read the words up on stage, you know, and so the actors needed to know how to say certain things and what, how to say it, like, you know. The, the pausing and the beats and whatnot. Yeah. The, and um, the theater company is sort of self-sufficient. So right. it's like if Shakespeare's writing it, he also has to coach the actors on how to perform it. Right. It's not like a modern play where there's all these stage directions. Right. And you can go look up modern interpretations. You were kind of just getting, and paper was except expensive. I imagine. Uh, when was the printing press invented? I don't know. Um, 1994 uh actually i remember it <laughs> well uh, the dawn of books it was quite a time to be alive you're a little too young you don't recall the dawn of books yeah i don't know either but i'm just gonna say it without any regard for whether i'm correct or not which has kind of been my mo paper was probably expensive back then anyway <laughs> so I imagine, you know, to save space and whatnot, that's another reason why the first folio kind of had to be written the way it was written. Yeah, Shakespeare, of course, was writing on papyrus, which uh, was the preferred uh, paper in Elizabethan Egypt. (laughs) And my preferred font. 
in <laughs> Elizabethan <laughs> Chicago. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I don't know, Andy. I mean, you know, I kind of have a verdict in mind. I don't know if there's any other points you want to kind of dive into here. Uh, you know, you let me know. I'll um, fucking follow you, dude. You know, let me. I, I you know, we talked. We talked a lot about uh, Francis Bacon and Edward Devere in the research, and the reason is is really because those two are the two main suspects that people consider outside of uh, Shakespeare himself. Um, and I just, I'll say, you know, in brief, like Francis Bacon, I gotta agree. Like, I don't, I don't see why Francis Bacon would do something like this. And I don't see where he would have had the time to, (laughs) in addition to everything else that he was doing in his life, also have the time to completely create a fictional person or pay for his name uh, when, (laughs) you know, honestly, like Francis Bacon financially was not in a super great position all the time. Uh, That's why he took those bribes. Um, But I, I just don't, I don't, I don't know. Like, it just doesn't make sense to me. And it's the same thing. There's no evidence. And the th- same thing with Edward Devere. It, it's like people think that it's romantic, I guess, that there's some noble secretly writing the greatest works of the English language. But <laughs> there's, not, there's not any evidence. Like, just because Shakespeare referenced something i mean i think you hit the nail on the head like shakespeare wasn't blazing a new trail with everything like biblical references that he was making it's not like these are the most obscure parts of the bible and devere also had notes next to them you know what i mean like right like he he was kind of the first guy to start writing plays for the modern audience right like hmm. for the common folk for the uh for the everyman like these weren't just for the whole town to enjoy, right? It wasn't just plays for the nobility or it wasn't just uh, fantastical histories or whatever, right? Like, right. Yeah, I think you know? I think it's like that's that's part of his that's part of his uh, charm and and why he continues to be so well regarded is it's like he wrote things for everybody. You know, there was political yeah. truth to what he was saying, and it resonated with. Uh, the people who were in power at the time in England, but there's also stuff that resonated with regular people so that folks like you and me don't need to understand the politics of Elizabethan England to be able to appreciate the works. You know, right. there, there's, there's something just more human about it than... He might have had the forethought to think like, oh... You know, people in the future might not get this reference. Like, let's keep it a little, you know, more, uh, you know. Um, sorry about that, listeners. We're back. We had a little mishap. Um, yeah. Andy, you were saying about uh, Shakespeare's plays are are more human. They are uh, they're kind of written with uh, the modern audience in mind. Yeah, I think that uh, there's something very. I mean, I think this it really speaks to the um, the the way that his plays have been embraced by so many different people. There's something very universal 
about them. Yeah. You know, it, it really, you layer sort of a lot of this stuff on, but at the end of the day, like if you peel it back, it's just about the people that are involved in it more than it is anything. And I mean, you said it, it's weird scenarios and stuff sometimes, but at the heart of it, it's, it's kind of, kind of something that's easy to relate to. Well, and I mean, I think he also, to give him some credit, you know, played around with the structure of a play maybe more so than, um, I don't know, previous. And again, I have no basis for this. Um, <laughs> I'm very unread and very uneducated. Right, I have right, no idea yeah, what I'm course. talking about. You know, this is off the cuff. Um, it's just your but like, I don't know. Did one of the, one of the fun things about Romeo and Juliet is that the chorus in the fir- the first lines of the play, the first paragraph of the play mm-hmm. spoken by the chorus details the entire events of the play. They literally two star-crossed lovers. They tell you the whole thing. They tell you how they they aren't they aren't allowed to be together. Then they tell you that they die. Spoiler alert. Oh boy. They, then they you know they say all that stuff. <laughs> Warning. But it's like massive spoilers for Shakespeare's plays throughout this whole episode. <laughs> but then it's like you still watch the whole play you know right. you still listen to it because you want to see the journey unfold um i don't know if plays previously did that kind of stuff you know maybe that kind of stuff was like fucking revolutionary to people they were like oh oh governor oh wow that was brilliant <laughs> you know how they sounded back <laughs> that's, then that's what they would have said you know i'm no scholar either art um but i i do think that i read while doing the research here that um you know that's shakespeare's really doing a style that's relatively new um yeah i think that something that i read said like you know there's no you know people would say like as a defense well there's no evidence of so and so writing or, the, you know, like somebody wrote a play like Shakespeare, you know, before Shakespeare did it. So maybe that person actually wrote Shakespeare's works. And it's like, well, you know, Shakespeare kind of is almost inventing this style as he goes. Yeah. So there's not there's not really a good predecessor necessarily for the types of things that he was doing. You know, he's sort of blazing his own trail in a way. And here's the thing, like trailblazers exist. Yeah. Like Michael somebody Jordan has to do exists. it. Yeah. Dr. J existed. Yeah. I don't know why I'm pulling basketball yeah. references yeah. in a, a conversation about Shakespeare, but it's like certain people are born and they're just fucking good. They're the best at what they do. And that's why they get written in the history books. That's why they're immortalized forever and some people are even the best of the best yeah. you know i mean some people all it takes is to have an idea and to be able to execute well on it and it just happens to resonate and that's right. i think what happened with shakespeare Statist- statistically it doesn't happen often and i get yeah. why you know there are uh anti or oxfordians or anti stratfordians who say like well you know Oh, this idea that it's like one guy writing all these great plays. And it's like, well, you know, every now and again, a fucking genius is born and they revolutionize the world with their work. You know, it happens. Yeah. doesn't happen often, but when it does, you know, it it happens. Yeah. I, I mean, it, it. 
I, that's a point I wanted to bring up that I forgot to bring up during our phantom time hypothesis episode was that um, that guy was like, well, you know, all this, he had all this big conspiracy, but it's like, at the end of the day, it's like, you know, Charlemagne was Charlemagne. Like he could have right. just been a really like revolutionary King. And, you know, he was just at the right place at the right time with the right genetics and the right environment. And, that's why he was able to do things, the things he was able to do. Yeah. I mean, I think people find it hard to believe, but it's like sometimes things just fall into place. It works. You know, there's. I think sometimes people aren't huge fucking losers like us who are like, well, of course they can do that. They're not me and you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's like the people that we know through history, the people that we remember uh, collectively as a society it's not that many people you know it's a small small percentage of the people that we remember there's so many people that uh for all their their gifts and for all of the the beauty that they bring into the world all the lives that they touch and everything at the you know in the long run of time and, and history these are people who end up just toiling in obscurity that for everything that they did that was good like they're not remembered after they die by more than the people whose lives they touched and you fucking son of a bitch I'm not saying that's bad I'm just saying you found a way to make life meaningless not he always does it bunk funkers I can't help every episode life is meaningless (laughs) not every person is going to be William Shakespeare otherwise we wouldn't give a shit about William Shakespeare frankly if everybody that's true if everybody wrote like William Shakespeare nobody would give a crap about William Shakespeare we wouldn't be talking about him Uh, that's right you know uh, what was the name of the the like best actor during Shakespeare's day, uh, Robert Burbage, I think, uh, if I've got that right, you know, correct me, bunk funkers, if I'm wrong, but uh, you ever heard of that guy before? I, I've correct heard his verbiage on Burbage. I heard him, I heard of him, and I still can't tell you who he is or anything about him. I've never heard that, but name he before. was, you know, allegedly like the best actor, the most well regarded actor of Shakespeare's time. Um, should have been Craig Basket Weaver. Yeah, Craig Basket Weaver was really the star of the London theater scene. Uh, but Burbage, is, you know, we don't talk about him today. You know, no. he probably only even comes up in relation to the fact that he was in the same company as Shakespeare. <laughs> you know, right? Like Shakespeare's uh, Shakespeare's company, theater company, was like kind of a big deal because it's like they had the best playwright, they had Shakespeare, they had the best actor, they had Burbage, like they had a good theater, they had the Globe, like. Again, it, everything just worked out, you know? It was in the right place, right time. Just like Charlemagne. Yep. Nope. Yeah, and uh, I, I think you're right there, Andy. I think you're right. I think you hit the nail on the head there. And um, much like being in the right place at the right time, we're in the right place in the right time for some verdicts. That's right. Um, You know, I mean, I think... We're in agreement here about which way we're going to lean. Yeah. But at the same time, given everything, I'm going to kind of have to pull the semantics card here, I think. Okay. And I think I'm just going to go plausible plus plus oh. Shakespeare wrote his plays. It was only him. 
But at the same time, I think there were more collaborative efforts that maybe we don't know about because they're lost to history or, you know, it just wasn't given credit to him or who knows the dynamics of the time. Maybe Shakespeare was a fucking asshole. You know? Maybe he was like a, a shitty boss who took credit for his underlings work i don't know I, I you know i don't know i think i don't think i have to say allegedly on that is the estate of william shakespeare gonna come after me if i don't say allegedly on that yeah they, I don't know. they will they'll get you uh you know I, i'm gonna i'm gonna say that i don't know where you where you necessarily draw the line and you have to credit somebody else i'll give you this much we don't know a lot about shakespeare's process and how he wrote right and, and anything like that there's that's part of the that's part of the reason that people are suspicious is because there's not a lot of evidence on that. But I mean, here's the thing. If 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 you and I if I was writing something and I We've written things together before. We've written many things together right, before right. in conjunction with other people as well. Right, right. We've we've written together before, we've written with other people before. Uh we've been through this, but like let's say I'm writing something on my own and I say to you like Hey Art, I'm working on this thing. I've got two like punchlines in mind for this joke. Which do you like better? Mm. Are you a co-writer now? No, I don't. Like, think so. would you think that it's unfair that I say this was written by me and my name's the only name? No, because you're the one who wrote the punchlines. I'm just helping you decide which one I think. I'm helping you make the marketing decision. You're right. So. Or whatever. Yeah, I mean, if there was collaboration know? like that, I mean, I don't think there's anything wrong with. I don't think you'd have to say, well, Shakespeare didn't really write all that by himself, you know. Or you know, it's how it's like. Uh, people might say, like, oh, the new, uh, like Will Ferrell movie. Will Ferrell was so funny, and it's like, yeah, but did Will Ferrell write that entire script? <laughs> did he direct it? Did he? Was he the editor who chose what lines to put, which take of Will yeah. Ferrell's to put in? You know, uh, was he the director who said, who told Will, like, hey, uh, maybe, maybe try this line really subtly, and then, uh, and then it'll, you know, it'll play off of how the other characters being real heightened. You know, it's like that always kind of bothered me. How it's like the, the main actor gets all the credit mm. for the movie and the performance when it's like. Dude, somebody wrote all their lines, you know? <laughs> okay, I see. Sure, there's improv, but... I see what you're saying. Okay, I can get behind this. You're, you're saying that, you know, Shakespeare gets all the credit for the success of these works, but really it might have been... There's maybe more behind the scenes that we just don't there, know and about. And we don't know. And the thing is, yeah, and, and I don't know. I'm just saying, like, in modern times, right. we already, like, fucking attribute everything to just one person automatically and it's like you know (laughs) it's like how many like the lighting person doesn't get credit for making you fucking look good in the scene the sound person for making sure that you know you uh sound good in your take you don't sound like a bubbling buffoon you know that's a good point Um, i think that the there are a lot of unsung heroes in you know especially with with cinema you know i mean there's a lot of work that goes into even just simple stuff and like actors. Thank you for calling it cinema. It's cinema. <laughs> it's not movies. It's cinema. Oh, God. I am a pretentious fuck. And, <laughs> you know, there's a lot of unsung heroes. Like, I mean, you know, sometimes even it's stuff like costume design. 
they don't get always a lot of direction on what to do. It's like, we kind of want them to look like this. And then it's like, okay, you run with that and make it work. So there's a lot of creative people behind the scenes that, you know, when you go to the movie theater and you watch a movie, you're watching the combined efforts of dozens of people. And, and yeah, millions and millions of dollars. (laughs) Yes. In a lot of cases. And yeah, you're right. There's a lot of, thankless jobs in Hollywood mm-hmm. that you will only will only receive uh any kind of attention when it's uh negative. Right. Yeah. Well, I shouldn't say that. Sometimes people really are like, holy fuck, the costumes on that sci fi show were incredible or whatever. But um or Game of Thrones usually, you know, the, the costuming in Game of Thrones is usually pretty decent. Yeah. They probably won an award or two, right? I mean those the the folks who worked on Game of Thrones, uh, on actually bringing it to life, they did an amazing job, and they had a freaking hard job too. I mean, oh my god! You ever watch the the documentary they did about the the making of the last season? Like just a little bit of it, and it looks god. hellacious, honestly. Like, oh my god, they're like. They're, they have to go film in some freezing fucking cold desolate tundra <laughs> yeah. and it's like night shoots and it's just like god all that work for the shittiest season of television in the history a season of television so bad yeah. that people will only remember the rest of the show for how shitty the ending is yeah you know I mean and the problems with it had nothing to do with the people that, that actually like made None of, no. brought that to life. No. None the actors weren't the problem. The sound wasn't the problem. The lighting could have been better. Uh the direction wasn't the problem. Although, the costuming, the stunts. I mean that's everything. A, that's, a, that's another good point though, Art. Was did the lighting people do a bad job or did they get directed to do a bad job? I think they got directed yeah, actually. That's kind of what it sounds like, right? That they were asked to make a lot of low light environments like that rather than uh, bringing it to life. Like I'm sure they were more than capable of doing, but I just want to say though, I just want to have it on record that it was all D and D's fault. Okay. And their hacks. Okay. And that show stopped being good after like the fourth or fifth season. Okay. So there's Art's verdict on game of Thrones case closed, but season eight was, one of the worst uh, seasons of television I've ever had to endure yeah. in my entire life. Yeah, it truly was awful. Truly, truly a waste of time. Yep. Uh, Andy, what's your verdict on Shakespeare? Uh, I'm going to keep it short and sweet because I'm drawing. I mean, I'm not getting into all the candidates and stuff. I'm going case closed. William Shakespeare Ooh. was the guy who wrote all the stuff that's attributed to him. I don't see anything. Wow compelling i go back to the same thing a lack of evidence doesn't mean that you just go find a bunch of people for whom there's no evidence at all like i don't (laughs) that's the argument the (laughs) anti-stratfordian argument is logically not constructed well so i can't support it end of story uh case closed yeah fair wow uh a kurt a kurt verdict a Kurt Verd, if you will, Kurt from Verd. Uh, Kurt, Kurt Verd, from famous MTV VJ, Kurt Verd. <laughs> uh, I loved getting the news from him, the MTV news. Um, 
Well, listeners, famous, that's our verdict. Famous author, Let us Kurt know. Vertigate. <laughs> that's a good one. Thank you. Uh, uh, slaughterhouse hives. <laughs> Great job. I don't know why I said that. <laughs> That was beautiful. No reason to follow up. Uh, no nope. reason to follow up. You got to take shots. All right. Anyway. So Art was the co-writer of my verdict <laughs> for that beautiful contribution. Uh, listeners, let us know what you think. Did we get it right? Did we get it wrong? Use the hashtag uh, Slick Willie Shakespeare. <laughs> I love it. You like that one? Or if you're okay. if you're an anti-Stratfordian, use the hashtag uh, Shit Smear. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Hashtag slick willy shit smear. <laughs> and let us know what you think. Uh, email us, mrbunkerpod at gmail.com. Tweet at us at mrbunkerpod. Slide into our DMs on Instagram, which we've been getting a few messages on there, and it's really f- cool to read those messages. So we really appreciate it. Yeah. At Mr. Bunker Pod. Check us out on YouTube by YouTube searching Mr. Bunker's Conspiracy Time uh, podcast. And that's it for social media. Um, yeah, Andy, uh, I think you had a fun little game that you wanted to play. Yeah. Real quick. Uh, this is just a real quick, a little, a little make believe um, for you, Art. I want to get your, I want to get your take on this. So, let's, let's say, all right, that, yeah. um, you, you suspect that a famous artist didn't actually create the art they're credited with creating. Who is this artist? And who actually did their works? And what's the deal with the cover-up? Um, I think that Jim Davis didn't create Garfield. Oh, God, I like where this is going already. <laughs> and I think uh, Jim Davis actually created a far inferior comic strip about a mischievous cat called Heathcliff. <laughs> and I think the cover-up is because Jim Davis does secretly love Mondays and fucking hates lasagna and didn't want, you know, was trying to cover that fact up. Wow. So he stole the works of the real creator of Garfield. Who is the... And I think Mr. Peanut created the Peanuts and not Mr. Charles Schultz. (laughs) That's why the name. And uh, Matt Groening didn't create the Simpsons. Uh, Jeffrey Epstein did. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Uh, bunk funkers, we're gonna. Wasn't Ma- we're gonna. Matt Groening was on those flight records, right? Yeah, yeah. One of the uh, the flights that he was on on Epstein's plane. Um, it's like he. I don't know. I, I forget what the exact details were, but it's something sick. Like he did. He turned down a few offers of things, but then like agreed to let a fourteen year old like massage his feet or something. Yeah, he's into feet stuff yeah. allegedly. Yeah, gross. So uh, maybe Dr. Scholes actually created the Simpsons because it's like a foot thing. (laughs) (laughs) No, but uh, Jim Davis and the Garfield comics for sure. That's for sure. Bonefunkers, we just want you to know we're definitely going to explore all of these uh, conspiracies uh, in future (laughs) episodes. 
Uh, Andy, did you come up with any? Uh, no, I didn't think about it. <laughs> okay. Fair enough. I didn't, I don't have you any. You posed the question to me. Yeah, I, I wanted to get your thoughts. Um, you know, I guess, um, I don't. Seth MacFarlane didn't create Family Guy. <laughs> Who did? Matt Groening. <laughs> That's actually what he created. Matt Groening didn't come up with The Simpsons, but he stole Jeffrey Epstein's idea and created Family Guy. Yep. But he pinned it on Seth MacFarlane. No, I mean, Seth MacFarlane. Uh, wasn't that always the thing that, like, you know, he kind of copied The Simpsons, even though it's kind of different even though they kind of both morphed into the same version of the same show right you know? right yeah i mean it's kind of the no, same seth mcfarland's have a has had a storied career in uh, a lot of different animation projects he actually at one point i think teamed up with butch hartman the creator of uh, the fairly odd parents to do make a show that didn't last very long or something didn't go past pilot do you like seth mcfarland I think Seth MacFarlane is much like Shakespeare actually is like stupidly talented in multiple different fields. He has a encyclopedic knowledge of musicals. Mm-hmm. He has a good singing voice. Mm-hmm. He has a good voice acting voice. Mm-hmm. He can draw and animate, mm-hmm. which if anyone's ever tried animating before is uh, no fucking simple task. It's like, it's like 10 times harder than just drawing one picture. You have to draw the same picture, you know, a million different times. Um, I think he understands business and marketing really well. I just think that, I don't know, his sense of humor isn't what I'm into, <laughs> but obviously millions of people are. Right. I always feel like he has all this talent and he uses it for evil and not for good. Like <laughs> Shakespeare used all his talent for good and Seth MacFarlane uses his for evil. <laughs> Yeah, cheap cutaway gags. You know what? Honestly, like, you could find, like, Family Guy compilations on... uh, And he doesn't even have his hand in Family Guy anymore. And apparently, allegedly, American Dad is actually really funny. Uh, I've been told that, like, you know, I think American Dad was, like, the second show he did. Right. So maybe he took... He kind of was focused on that when Family Guy started tanking. It's one of those things where it's like, I've never really watched... American dad enough because it just yeah. you know it's like you can you can tell it's Seth MacFarlane and so it feels right. sort of just like family guy a little bit and so I never really got into it and then it's like I saw part of an episode once of the Cleveland show and I thought that was god awful um, like as bad yeah. as anything I've ever seen and it just made <laughs> me feel like okay this is not this whole uh, animation universe is not for me. Well, you're getting into it with SpongeBob. Uh, now, SpongeBob is a fucking classic that will probably be remembered much like Shakespearean plays. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I truly believe that. That <laughs> SpongeBob's contribution to memes alone uh, <laughs> will live on forever. But, uh, 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 Art, I made a yeah. friggin' sweet literary reference earlier today talking to my wife. Uh, yeah. I made a reference, uh, to the Simpsons episode, The Lemon of Troy. Um, which I've seen. So there's a part where, uh, they, they have their, uh, RV, Flanders RV gets impounded 
and they're trying to get it back there on the other side of the fence. And the guy, the Shelbyvillian guy uh, who owns the impound lot, he says uh, something to the effect of like, now you'll excuse me. All this talking has made me hungry. <laughs> and he like bites into a lemon <laughs> and his face curls up because he's eating a lemon. And yeah, like, yeah. that's a, that's a very heavily memed, um, face in the Simpsons shitposting community. And, <laughs> and I said, I made that reference and Amanda's like, what are you talking about? And I said, I'm uh, making a reference to the lemon of Troy, the face that launched a thousand memes. It's <laughs> a good reference. Very good. reference. It's literary and uh, Simpsons. So, you know, you're welcome everybody. Andy's contributions That's to the my world contribution right don't there. need to go unnoticed. Yeah. I don't need to die in obscurity like everybody else. Well, I uh, I can't say for certain whether these uh these audio recordings will live on in infamy <laughs> as uh sh- or live on 400 years as Shakespeare's uh did, but uh you know, I hope so. You know, um I take solace in the fact that um we could just play them out loud uh, outside and they'll live forever in space. That's true. Can't do that with a book. No. Uh, Shakespeare's not going to make it to the moon, but we will. That's our promise. That's the bunker promise. Uh, actually, by now, Shakespeare probably did make it to the moon. I'm sure there's been radio broadcasts of his plays and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, no, you're right. So, we got beat by Shakespeare again. again. <sighs> Shit's here. <sighs> fucking shit smear well listeners thanks for listening to our audio shit smear as always every week um andy any last words about the immortal bard that you want to put out there to the airwaves no uh i mean what more can we say about a man who's been uh, endlessly discussed for 400 years um i certainly am not going to contribute anything new to the discussion so i'll just say to the bunk funkers out there you're listening Thank you for being with us. Uh, we hope you are healthy and safe. And seen. Um, a beautiful message. And uh, I think there's no better way to wrap it up here, Andy. So for the, uh, well, I guess not for the titular Mr. Bunker. Yeah, this but is us on our own. Wherever the, We're flying solo. I mean, wherever the f- duo. Yeah, wherever the fuck he is. Uh, and for my uh, apoplectic co-host. <laughs> oh, God. Perfect. <laughs> absolutely perfect (laughs) Andy Hart I'm Art Stone saying that was the whole enchilada yummy History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? 
Did the Allied powers go too far in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon.